Father in heaven, we do love you. Uh, we do thank you for so many of the wonderful things that you uh, offer to us, including this sense of renewal. We pray that our lives would be marked with devotion, God, that we would truly commit our hearts to you, that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know your good, pleasing, and perfect will, God, and that we would run after your will in all things, and that ultimately, God, in that devotion and in that discernment, we would find delight, uh, that in this in this season of Lent, as we make this journey to the cross, even with all of the challenges that we may face in our own lives, or as we reflect upon the suffering of our Savior, that even there, God, we would find joy. Because we know that even when your will escapes our understanding, when it escapes our, our ability to comprehend it, we can still trust and know that it is good, it is pleasing, it is perfect. And we know that to be true because you are holy God. And we come before you now in perfect adoration, humble adoration, to seek that glory even further. So be with us now, God, as we open up your word and let it speak to us in a way that changes us and molds us, that our lives could be used to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 2. We have a lot to cover, uh, so no promises on the time today. Um, Here's, here's where we've been. Romans has been a journey, as we've said, about this renewed life. It's set the theme. It's the, it's the book that's going to be our anchor for the year. In many respects, we will have different series throughout the year as well. Um, but we've been working through this very methodically and, and uh, going through a similar progression uh, or a thoughtful progression. And so just to kind of anticipate what we're looking at today, let me remind you that when you get to chapter 1, verse 18, Paul shifts into the main thrust of his letter by introducing the wrath of God, a wrath of God that is introduced and being revealed against godlessness and wickedness and all those who suppress the truth. And that launches into a very thorough and vivid description of what that godlessness and wickedness looks like, a godlessness that rejects God, a wickedness that often manifests itself in terms of how we treat one another, right? And you see those things beginning to unfold with a very, uh, a very difficult description, a very convicting description that really culminates in this, this chilling moment at the end there in verse 32 where he references that there are those who know that such conduct deserves death, but they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them, right? It's a picture of blatant rejection and rebellion. And so as Paul is laying that out, we know that this is likely uh, probably being read and heard in particular with a focus towards the Gentiles because they would be the ones that had a more outright um, and, and kind of outward experience or expression of rejection of God and idolatry and all these different things. And so you can almost envision the, the Jewish audience that was also probably reading and hearing this letter standing behind Paul almost and joining with him in this condemnation, pointing fingers at the Gentiles for such a lifestyle. And in chapter two, it's almost as if Paul turns to those folks and says, oh, but by the way, you have no right to judge. You are, are without any excuse because you who cast judgment do the same things, right? And so what we talked about last week is that Judaic mindset that judgment was not, uh, uh, he, he's, he's con he is condemning the idea that you can judge not in the sense that you eradicate accountability, Right? Not in the sense that you no longer hold each other accountable. Right? The scriptures are clear that you have to hold each other accountable. You have to teach sound doctrine. You have to pursue holiness. The judgment he is speaking of here is this idea that you are without sin. Right? That you get to escape 
God's judgment. And the Jews had fallen into that level of self-deception merely because they were Jews. And so he calls that out and says, you think you, a mere human being, are going to escape God's judgment. And so he speaks against that and whittles it down to say it's not really about whether or not you're Jew or Gentile, but whether or not your heart is going to pursue that which is evil. And if it pursues that which is evil, what are you going to receive? But wrath, anger, trouble, distress. But if your heart pursues that which is good, you're going to receive glory, honor, peace, and eternal life. Right? And so that's, that's the framework that Paul has laid out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now he's continuing to build on this argument. One of the things I want you to see as we read is that we're reading a really comprehensive argument that he's laying out really for the first chapter and a half, two and a half chapters of this letter that reaches a very climactic moment in chapter three, which we'll cover on Easter Sunday. So when we read today, don't forget what we talked about last week, but also know there's more coming. He's building an argument, so we have to look at it in that sequence. But let's pick up in chapter two, verse 12. It says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Okay, this is a a heady and heavy text. Okay, and it's incredibly important because I think it addresses one of the main challenges that oftentimes we encounter um, in our own lives and thoughts of other people's lives as well about understanding how God holds us accountable and judges us. Right? It, it kind of speaks to, to a certain extent, God's right to, to judge mankind, to, to have hell, heaven, all those different things. And so it's a very important text for us to understand because maybe you have that question. Maybe you've wrestled with that idea. And if you haven't, I guarantee you, you probably know someone that has. And so we need to really have a thoughtful understanding of what's being laid out here. And it doesn't necessarily address it in its entirety because, again, this is part of one piece of a much longer argument that we're walking through. But even just these five verses, 12 through 16, have a tremendous amount of value for us to really take the time and understand. And so the only way I I think we should do this today is just look at it line by line. Again, work through it verse by verse, okay? Uh, So let's start with verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So if you can can see the theme already being developed here, Paul has made this argument about judgment, right, that there are going to be those who do good and those who do evil. Now, how do we know the difference between which is which? What is the barometer? What is the metric for good and evil but the law? Which is why you hear that word referenced Over and over and over again in this next paragraph, Paul is moving forward. The law is the one that typically helps us determine that which is good and evil. And so what he does in verse 12 is he he offers some uh, distinctions about how those understand the law. And that's typically where my mind gravitates when I read verse 12 are these distinctions that he addresses, right? There are those who are apart from the law and those who are under the law. So clearly he's referencing the Gentiles, who would be considered apart from the law, and the Jews who would be considered under the law. So he's acknowledging there's a distinction, right? Not not everyone received 
the law. You also see a little bit of a distinction. It's not really quite as distinctive or, or different as you might initially think um, once you actually look into it because he references that those who sin um, apart from the law will perish. Those who sin under the law will be judged. Okay, and so now you have a difference between perishing and judgment. Uh, just a basic definition, perishing means destruction. Judgment means evaluation, right? And so you kind of have this this thought, potentially, if you're like me, to read verse 12 and think, oh, okay, so maybe there's a little bit of a different response to the Gentiles. They're gonna perish, whereas the Jews will just be judged, right? But when you really look at uh, what's being stated here and the point that Paul is really trying to make, he's not arguing for distinctions. He's not trying to lay a case into how Jews and Gentiles are different. What he's actually trying to do is argue for how they're the same. Right, there's a commonality that he's also referencing in verse 12, which is what? All who sin, period. Whether you sin under the law or apart from the law, both Jews and Gentiles sin, right? Which is the same case he's been making verse through to chapter one and now the early part of chapter two. You've all sinned, and if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that's where he's headed. Right? And so he's talking about the commonality of sinfulness. And so whether you were given the law or, where you, or whether you were apart from the law, all sin. And he's making that case for this common understanding of sinfulness. Okay, So with that being made, he progresses a little bit further on his argument by addressing a common question or at least a common self-deception by looking at what he mentioned in verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And so this is speaking to the Jews most directly, right? This is that self-deception that they would likely have had. Well, we were God's chosen people. We received the law. Therefore, we will be seen as righteous. Therefore, I will receive a certain favorable judgment as a result, Right? And so, so Paul is speaking against that self-deceiving way of thinking. It is not enough to simply hear the law and be found righteous. It is about obedience to the law. Right? This is, is the same sort of tone that you find in James chapter 1. I'm going to read this to you. We have it on the screens as well. But this is something that you see consistently in Scripture Chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 read, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at himself in a mirror, looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed and what they do. And so Paul's making this similar argument for, uh, for the Jews, right? It is not enough for you to just hear the word. You have to mark it with obedience. And this is absolutely a word that you and I need to take seriously. Because what the Jews demonstrate for us at this point in time is the same self-deceiving mindset that you and I can fall victim to even today. That it is very easy to cultivate a life where all you do is hear the word and never obey. It is easy to come to church and listen 
and sing songs and lift your hands and even take notes on the sermon. It's easy to join other Bible studies throughout your week, whether it's at church or BSF or some other group that you've heard of in your neighborhood or whatever it is, and and consistently read and hear and listen to the word of God. It can even be possible for you to be so interested in those things to start studying it in the Greek and the Hebrew and go to seminary and even become a pastor and serve in a church and cultivate an entire life where you hear the word all the time and never do what it says. And it's self-deception. And it's incredibly destructive to the name of God. Right, in fact, what we'll see next week, or at least later in the next few verses of this chapter, is that Paul continues to say, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of this self-deception, because of this idea that I can just listen and not obey. For us, it's nominal Christianity. Right? It's this idea that I can affiliate with this uh, Christian lifestyle in name only. Call myself a Christian, surround myself with Christian practices, but never demonstrate any sort of lifestyle of obedience. And it's destructive. Because I'll tell you, church, I've got a number of friends, number of people in my life who I know have struggled with doubts, questions, considerations, who have left the church, who have no interest in the church, and one of the common reasons why is hypocrisy. Because when we give in to this sort of self-deceiving mindset, we create a culture that is ripe with hypocrisy. Now let me, let me be clear with what I mean when I'm talking about this, okay? I'm not saying the church should be filled with perfect people who always perfectly obey. It's not possible, but we all know there's a difference between a congregation or a community of faith of broken sinners who are earnestly seeking holiness and obedience and repentance versus those who are merely trying to claim an affiliation with the name and then living however they want to live. And that's the sort of hypocrisy that becomes so detrimental and dangerous. I was having coffee with a friend not too long ago. Good friend of mine, uh, incredibly sweet, kind, kind-hearted person. Uh, she grew up in church and has since left it. And part of the reason uh, she, she has left it is because of this hypocrisy. Not too long ago, we were talking about the concept of heaven. Not even just like biblical heaven and be- believing in Jesus. Just what happens after you die. And we were talking about the afterlife, and clearly the afterlife is, the, is a question of faith. Nobody knows with certainty what happens. And so I asked the question, why not believe in a heaven? I mean, you don't know, so like, it seems like such a good idea. Why would you not want to have that comfort? Even if it's not the heaven of the Bible or whatever, why not choose to believe it? And she stopped and she thought for a little bit and she said, you know, that's a really good question because it is a very pleasant idea. It does bring peace, it does bring hope. And then she paused and she said, you know, I think it's because just the idea of being associated with evangelical Christians makes me so uneasy because of all the hypocrisy I've seen. That's the sort of destruction that merely listening to the word and never doing what it says can have on those around us. And Paul's attacking that. Don't deceive yourself, Jews. Just because you received the law, that is not how you will find righteousness. It comes through obedience, which then leads us to verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, 
even though they don't have the law. This is where it gets really interesting. And really, verse 14 and 15 uh, go very closely together, uh, but I'm going to break them apart. So here's what happens next. Having said that, right, that this, this is all about obedience to the law, recognizing that the law is the metric to uh, understanding sinful behavior, Paul is now anticipating an obvious question. How then is it right for God to hold these Gentiles accountable to breaking a law they didn't know existed? How could he possibly do that? Now you, you should recognize the overtones of similar thoughts that you hear today. How is it right for God to judge and condemn people who never had the chance to know him? or know his truth? That's the question that is being asked here that Paul is really beginning to address, right? It's this idea of a student uh, who misses the first day of class, the first day where the teacher goes over all the rules, <clears throat> explains how you're gonna conduct yourself in her class, and in going over those rules, she explains if it gets too noisy, I'm gonna clap twice, and when you hear two clap students, you're supposed to clap twice, and then it should just be silent. Right, she goes over those certain rules, and then the next day, the student that missed the first day is in there, the class gets noisy, and all of a sudden, the teacher claps, the rest of the students clap twice, everyone remains silent except the student that missed the first day. That student goes on talking. Is it right for that teacher to punish that student in that moment when that student had no idea that was a rule? Is that fair? Wouldn't we expect the teacher to say, well, hey, you missed the first day, here's really what, shouldn't that teacher give them some level of awareness? Right? This is what we think of. And so that's the question. How is it right for God to declare Gentiles sinful for breaking a law they didn't have? And so Paul references a natural law. This is really interesting. Right? You see what he says here? He says, the Gentiles who do not have the law will by nature do things required by the law and in so doing, become a law for themselves. He's speaking to a natural law that even though they're not aware of what was stated in the law of Moses, they are going to instinctively live in a certain level of accordance to it. Now, this does not likely mean that Paul is referring to very specific elements of the Mosaic law like ceremonial cleanliness or not shaving your sideburns and all those random things that we see in Leviticus and beyond. But when you start thinking about other concepts of the natural law of life. Do not murder. Do not steal. There's going to be an inherent natural disposition to those things. And when the Gentiles live accordingly, they are fulfilling the law without even knowing it exists. And in so doing, they became a law for themselves. So he's speaking about a natural law. Now, you might be sitting there going, now, come on. Come on, there's no way that we just have this one natural, look at all the different laws, all the different rules, all the different regulations. How can we acknowledge a common sense of right and wrong? Well, let's just start at the most basic understanding, which is an awareness of a natural law, simply because we all desire a sense for that which is right and that which is wrong. Right, the question itself, even the statement, is it fair for God to condemn Gentiles is sinful when they didn't have a law is a statement of your personal awareness for that which is fair, that which is right, that which is just. We all have some sense and desire to pursue right and wrong, even if we disagree on what right and wrong is. C.S. Lewis has a great, a great 
reference to it in his, in his book, The Case for Christianity. Let me reference this. It says, when quarrels develop between people, the thing to be determined is who is in the right and who is in the wrong. The parties may differ radically as to their respective positions on the issue, but they are very clear that there is a right and a wrong. So similarly, despite the great differences in laws and customs among people around the world, what unites them in a common humanity is the recognition that some things are right and others are wrong. And so you have this natural law, this this natural desire for justice. Every society has it. Societies may differ on what it is, but we all long for it. There is a natural predisposition in the human heart to find that which is just and that which is unjust, that which is right, that which is wrong. So the question then becomes, if we all recognize the need for that, who gets to make that decision? Who gets to make the call on what's right and wrong? And you really have two choices at the end of the day. Right? You can either choose in a creator that, that gives us that inherent notion of justice, good and evil, right and wrong, or you can remove him from the equation. And if you decide to remove him from the equation, then all that's left is humanity. That's really it. Right? You get to decide for yourself Right? I get to come up with my own moral code of conduct. I get to decide for myself what's good and evil, greedy or lustful, or all these different things. I'm going to make my own determination. Right? And that's a pretty bold move. Because I think we would all recognize, first and foremost, none of us is perfect. Secondly, there are numerous complexities to right and wrong and justice and justice that far exceeds our ability to make and render such judgments. And we're all prone towards corruption, and abuse, and exploitation, right? Are we really trustworthy to be the sole determiners of right and wrong, not just for ourselves, but all of society? Are we really that arrogant to think we could assume that? And so maybe we don't want it personally. And so let me subscribe to this idea of evolutionary theory, right? It's this, this concept that because of survival of the fittest, we will inherently figure out that it is gonna be easier for us to survive if we work collectively as a group. And through time, society will naturally develop laws and customs so the group can endure and flourish and persevere and people will be able to be protected. And that's how laws and rules and governments and institutions begin to regulate themselves. Natural evolution of survival of the fittest. That could be where you want to place your trust and to figure out what is right and wrong. The problem with that is human history. And the fact that every institution Every form of government, everyone who's ever really been in power has been predisposed towards corruption, greed, abuse, exploitation that has resulted in war, genocide, slavery, and the list of altercations goes on and on and on. Is that really where you want to put your trust in right and wrong? So you remove God out of the equation, right, and say, okay, I, I believe there's an inherent understanding of of right and wrong, good and evil, but God's not the one that's gonna define it. All that's left is humanity, and that's a pretty dangerous proposition in my opinion. Doesn't tend to lead to good things, and evidence in our own lives and human history seems to suggest that. So who can we entrust to determine right and wrong? Who is worthy of such determination? Well, God. 
Let's put him back into the equation. And verse 15 explains a lot of why he is the one who is worthy of making those determinations. Look at verse 15. They show, they being the Gentiles, or, or those who do by nature the things required of the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Okay, so this is interesting. So now Paul gives us three reasons as to why God is the right person to make those decisions. Number one, there's a law written on our hearts. Number two, we have our consciences. Number three, our thoughts. Okay, so let me define those real quickly. The idea of the law being written on our hearts speaks to the idea that we are created in God's image. We are image bearers, meaning that the reason you have that tendency, that, that predisposition to understand right from wrong or to long for justice or injustice is because you're made in his image and his fingerprints are on you, right? You, you can feel it because he is the creator. He is a, a natural order to the universe. Going back to chapter one, his divine qualities, his invisible nature have been put on display so that we are without excuse. And so our desire for that is further evidence of that creative work within us. Now, those impulses are absolutely corruptible. They can be abusive. They can be distorted. But we all have that written on our hearts. That's number one. Number two, a conscience. Right now, a conscience is a concept that would have been very widely accepted and embraced in Hellenism at the point that Paul was writing this letter. And all it simply means is that moral conduct, that, that inner voice, that inner monitor that tells us if I should or shouldn't. We all have that. Right? We have that moment in our minds where we go, yeah, that, that is a good decision. No, it's not a good decision. So you have a conscience that helps define it. And then that leads to the third one, which is our thoughts. Right now, what he says here is that your thoughts can either accuse or defend. So here's what's really interesting about the thoughts that are being referenced here. Because this speaks to the idea that maybe I encounter that law written on my heart. Maybe I encounter my conscience and I think, okay, I really shouldn't do that. So I don't. And because I had that thought, my thoughts will help defend me. But what about those moments where our thoughts say, you know, I really shouldn't do that, but I'm going to anyway. Well, in that moment, our thoughts will accuse us. And see, those thoughts we can cover. We can plead ignorance, right? Like the student, maybe the student actually picked up on it in the moment. Oh, I should really clap and be quiet, but decided internally not to do it and deliberately disobeyed. And when he was caught in his disobedience, what's his answer? I didn't know. But what would betray him? thoughts. So let me ask you a question, church. Raise your hands if you know the hearts, conscience, and thoughts of other people. God does. And that means he's dealing with way more evidence and understanding of what is right and wrong in the life of someone else than you and I will ever have. He is absolutely worthy of making that determination because, because he knows the hearts, conscience, and thoughts of others, and we don't. And so he will be the voice of that sort of determination, which is a really, really powerful thing to consider. 
So the question then becomes, why do we feel like this is so unfair? Let's look at verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. See, the reason I think we really struggle with this concept is because of this day of judgment. Right? This, this is where it gets really uncomfortable for us because I think most of us would say, I'm okay with the God that gives us a moral framework. I'm okay with the Sermon on the Mount. I'm okay with a God that can tell me, yeah, it's better to give than to receive or to turn the other cheek or to do all these other, love your neighbor, man, I'm all in on that. But when all of a sudden it culminates in a day of judgment where he judges men's secrets, that's when we all get uneasy. We talked about this day of judgment this past summer when we were doing the letters to the churches of Revelation. Right, because now when we get to a day of judgment, a day when we get to really know if, if a human heart was prone towards evil and is going to receive wrath and anger and trouble and distress, or if a heart was actually pursuing goodness and receive glory, honor, and peace, when we get to that day, we all become incredibly uneasy with the idea of God condemning people to hell. And that's where we really struggle, this day of judgment. And so why do we struggle with it? A couple of things. One is we don't like the idea of hell, period. Right? We, we, we really don't like the idea that it could exist, and understandably so. And we begin to think that that's such a horrible thing to exist that if it did exist, then God couldn't be good. Let me explain to you why I think it needs to exist. And not only does it need to exist, but by existing it actually confirms God's goodness, not diminishes it. Right? The reason it's necessary is because it takes seriously the problem of evil. Anybody here want to subscribe to the idea that evil doesn't exist in the world? It exists in horrific ways, ways that we've already referenced, war, genocide, slavery, oppression. I could go on and on and on. It exists. And it needs to be dealt with. And if we want to assume that it will never be dealt with, then really what we're advocating for is for evil to go unpunished. And that is so illogical for us to believe that when in every other arena of life we consistently demonstrate the notion of justice where wrong behavior is punished. Think about it, every arena. The child that disobeys the parent, the student that cheats on an exam, the, the colleague that gets fired for harassment, the criminal that gets thrown in prison for murder. At every arena, we believe wrong behavior should be dealt with in life. And when it is not dealt with, when the parent doesn't discipline the child, when the teacher allows cheating to continue, when the company allows harassment to go unrestrained, when a judge lets murderers go free, we never call that verdict good. But all of a sudden, get to the end of life, and all of that logic gets thrown out the window. Yep, let's just let evil happen. Because that's the only way that God can preserve his goodness. Wrong. It destroys his goodness. Evil has to be dealt with. To say that it shouldn't be 
is a mischaracterization of God. It diminishes his goodness and it promotes evil. And yet we're still uncomfortable with it. Why? Because the reality is, when you really begin to read these verses, the first thing we recognize is that none of us will escape his judgment. Oh, he's going to judge my thoughts, my secrets, my heart, my conscience. Who in the world will be found obedient? And the answer is no one. And so we're afraid. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate. That's exactly where the argument is taking us. And it exactly is the posture that we should assume as we make our journey to the cross. We need rescue. There is no escaping it. And we should feel the weight of that. The tendency in that fear is that it's much easier than to take God's right to judge and condemn out of his hands and put it in our own. Because now it's easier if I get to decide what's right and wrong for me, what's my truth and what's your truth, and that society's so much easier if we can do it that way. So let me just take God out of the equation, as ridiculous and as illogical as that really is. Because we're afraid. Because we know we can't escape his judgment. And that's exactly the weight that we should send under. And so what we long for is for this to actually be seen as fair. For this actually to be seen as just, right? Because we're not talking about just a momentary go to your room. Right? Any parent that puts their child in time out for eternity doesn't seem like a good parent, right? Right? So the reason we also struggle with it is not only because we know we're going to be found guilty, but we're like, surely there will be a way out, won't there? Surely there's an avenue to escape that condemnation. And here's the good news, church, there is. Did you read verse 16 carefully? He unpacks it in chapter 3, which is what we'll talk about on Easter Sunday, but he foreshadows it here. How will men's secrets will be judged on that day? Will they be judged through the law? They'll be judged through Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the way. He is the opportunity to find a way out. That judgment comes not through the law, but through Jesus Christ, the one who did live perfectly, who did live this sinless life and offered his life as a sacrifice so that the penalty for sin could be fully absorbed in the cross, thereby taking all of our sin and giving us all of his righteousness. That's where the judgment will be seen and leveled against the hearts of humanity. So let me be very clear. I do believe that absolutely a way has been made. And it has been made to everyone. Because that's the next level of of questioning, isn't it? Okay, I need to know that he hasn't just extended a way out of this judgment, but I need to know that everyone has a chance. Right, that's kind of the undertone that goes back to verse 14. Is it fair for God to condemn the Gentiles when they weren't even given the Jews? And so now we've arrived at the hypothetical that so many people wrestle with. How is it fair for a loving God to condemn people to hell who have never heard about Jesus? And it's a hypothetical question that really is weak and falters when you really begin to deal with it 
because it mischaracterizes God, right? Because here's the reality, right? What we're doing is creating an arbitrary scenario and picture that minimizes who our God is and how he reveals himself and makes this way of Jesus known to every heart, All right? So here are a couple of things that I would say to help answer that question for us this morning, okay? When we begin to wrestle with, all right, there is condemnation, but praise God, there is a way through Jesus, but how do we know that everyone has a chance to hear that way? There are certain things we have to keep in mind about our God and the way in which he engages with us. Number one, it's faith. Righteousness comes through faith. Right, that's where Paul's headed in this letter. Now, awareness of sin comes through the law. Right, disobedience to the law makes us conscious and aware of our sin and our shortcoming. Righteousness comes through faith. Right, Abraham was declared righteous, why? Because he believed God and it was credited to him to his righteousness. Abraham far, uh, existed far before the law was ever given and yet he was still found to be righteous. So faith in God, believing in God, trusting in God, following in God is an object of faith. And what we see mysteriously through the scriptures is that faith is often seen through the lens of Jesus no matter the time and location of the heart that demonstrates that faith. I wanna prove it to you according to the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 goes through the great hall of fame of faith, if you're familiar with that passage, and all these incredible characters and, and, and people who, who lived and demonstrated such faithfulness. And at one point, the author of Hebrews gets to Moses, and there's this beautiful reference to Moses' faith that to me is mysterious and beautiful all at the same time. Let me read it to you. It comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. I'm actually, I'm just gonna read 25. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now I can't explain that. But what I see is that Moses' faith in his decision to choose disgrace was for the sake of Christ. And so when you look at the full teaching of scripture and see that Jesus is word becoming flesh, word that was with God, that was God, that was with God in the beginning, when you understand that he is the Godhead three in one, Jesus always was, is, and will be. So faith is always seen through the lens of Jesus, even for people as far back as Moses. And so what we need to do is to put that trust and understand that God is going to be able to demonstrate the grace of Christ no matter where somebody is and how they may encounter it. Okay, let me give you further examples of this. The minute that we suspend a belief in the God of the Bible and create this hypothetical that makes us think that he's just gonna arbitrarily condemn people to hell for never actually hearing the gospel minimizes his character, right? It, it distorts what we see in the scripture over and over again. Because what are other qualities? Not only is he looking for faith, other qualities is that he is a God of mercy. Time and time again we see it. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He is a merciful God. He is rich in mercy. So here's the point. That little hypothetical of the, the, the man living on a deserted island that's never heard the gospel about, about Christ, God is aware. He's fully aware of what that person has, that has had the chance to hear and not hear. And when you compare that man and you think about the verses in the scripture that say to whom much is given, much is required, 
And you compare that man to the person that maybe has gotten a PhD from a seminary and has access to dozens if not hundreds of translations of scripture on their phone, he's going to view them differently. Because one was given many opportunities and one was given fewer. And his mercy will be on display. I fully believe it. And so my point is this, a couple of things. One is that God is not going to arbitrarily condemn people to hell for some sort of ignorant opportunity to never know something. Right, that's not the scenario. The condemnation towards hell is gonna be an outright, outright rejection of him as described in Romans 1. A refusal, a blatant pursuit of evil. And the reason we can have further trust in that is because it's not just that God is a God who believes in faith, who wants mercy, but he is a God of revelation. Think about all the different ways that God reveals himself in scripture. He reveals himself through creation, he reveals himself through the prophets, he reveals himself through the word. He reveals himself through a burning bush, through miracles, through a whale, through uh, the Holy Spirit, through the church. I mean, think through dreams. Think of all the different ways that God reveals himself. And so now all of a sudden, we're going to create a hypothetical scenario and just assume God is actually trying to conceal himself and hide himself from this person? That's not who our God is. And just so that you know that that's not just a reference to some ancient scripture, let me tell you some stories this morning, just briefly. We used to do a lot of work in New York when I was a missions pastor at First Arlington. And one of the chief people that we worked with there was a missiologist by the name of Chris Clayman who would work amongst unreached people groups in the city of New York. A phenomenal, phenomenal man. And he had a lot of experience and work with Muslims, led several different Bible studies with different groups of Muslims. And so he was kind of a, a leading expert in that arena. And he and I were talking many years ago and he said, let me tell you something, you know the second leading cause for a Muslim to convert to Christianity, Jeremiah? I said, no, what is it? But tell me number one first. And he said, well, number one reason is the love of Christians. The absence of hypocrisy, I should point out, right? The love of Christians is the number one reason a Muslim will convert to Christianity. You know what number two is? Dreams. Dreams. It's so common. I have another friend who is a missionary in Southeast Asia working in highly concentrated areas of Muslims that he would walk into mosques and stand up and say, I'm here to talk to anyone who's had a dream about a man dressed in white. If you want to know more about him, come find me in the parking lot afterwards, and people will come find him. And I sat in Tarodi, a small village in Niger, that is absolutely, Niger is 99.9% Muslim. And I spoke to a man who is a Muslim imam, right, a leader for the Islamic community in this village. His name was Husseini, and I heard his testimony, and I saw him sit there in his own hut with my own eyes talk about the dreams that he had that led him to believe in Jesus. As a missions pastor, I have traveled to, yes, the States, to Mexico, Costa Rica, Spain, Turkey, Egypt, India, Japan, China, Indonesia, just to name a few. And every single time I have seen God at work constantly revealing himself in ways that defy explanation and mobilizing his church to reveal himself. There's not a corner of the earth that God is not pursuing. So how dare we? 
create an idea that somehow, someway, God is all of a sudden gonna stop being merciful, stop asking for faith, and stop revealing himself so he can arbitrarily condemn people to hell. That's not our God. So what I fully believe, church, is that on that day of judgment, when we all stand before his throne, we will be able to come once again and declare our own inability, acknowledge our own sinfulness, that we were unable to uphold this law that is so righteous and so good, and we will once again cry out for a savior, and all people, every tongue, tribe, and nation will be able to be seen through the lens, not of some arbitrary law, but through Jesus Christ, and when seen through that lens, every heart, tribe, tongue, and nation will once again be able to exemplify and point to the mercy of God, the revelation of God, and we will all declare it was good news. Because that's who he is. And that's what our gospel declares. And so this morning, church, my hope is that we take these messages seriously because I assure you, if you don't have these questions, you know someone that does. And my hope is that you can point them to the goodness of our God, the mercy of our God, and encourage their faith for them to turn to the rock of ages and to once again hide themselves in him. And so if you don't know someone, then you probably are that someone. And today is a day for us to once again acknowledge our need for saving and give praise to God that he has made a way, and that way is Jesus Christ. And so let us continue this journey to the cross, fully aware of his mercy, praising God that he has revealed himself and giving him our faith, our hearts, and our minds, that we would hide ourselves in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we confess so many times we fail to grasp and comprehend the greatness that you are, the mercy that you extend, the miraculous ways in which you reveal yourself. And so, God, may we come humbly now before you once again, acknowledging our own brokenness, acknowledging our own sin, longing for a rescue. And may we turn to this rock of ages and find rest in him as we make our journey to this cross and find that the renewed life that sets us free from such sin is the life that allows us to once again experience grace, mercy, forgiveness. And may that bring us comfort today. May it foster a resiliency within us today and a conviction to bring you the praise and glory you so richly deserve. God, for any heart that has run from you because of the hypocrisy of the church, forgive us. For any heart that has run from you because of the idea of 
hell or judgment. Reclaim it as your own. Help them to see your love. Help them to see Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.